three, two, one. Let's go! go. I'm the host of the PBE podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, and joined uh, with with uh, with Andrew Douglas, and I'll introduce him here in a second. Read his resume. Um, but what uh, what's interesting? Or no, first off, first of all, we got to talk about Trunkline. Trunkline is the premier Angie's list for the oil field. Uh, it's a website that you can put up your projects. You can put up as a consultant what you do. You can put up projects. Uh, you can track your, prof- your your project portfolio. You can track all your work, right? And internally review this thing with, with employees and say, this is what we learned from this job. This is how we can get better. It's a place to put all that, but it's also that uh, super efficient link that you might need to win to bid. Somebody says, hey, this is what I need this tank battery rebuilt. That's exactly what I do. Check out this link. It takes them to the website. And it takes you to the, the Trunkline page where you can you can learn more about what that company does. Exactly their work. Showcase your work. Win bids. It's Trunkline.com. And they got legendary oil field socks. <laughs> Mr. Andrew got a pair. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we met at the South Texas Geologic Society Happy Hour, which South Texas Geologic Society is holding the oil industry Christmas party. December 15th, we're all getting together. The people who are you know, working on this industry, where is it going? How are we continuing to, to thrive with technology and the reality of oil and gas? We get all that network together. They're still looking for sponsors, so reach out to STGS if you're interested in sponsoring for that uh, Christmas party. And definitely register. Register online, or you can come right at the door the night of and uh, and get a ticket and and join this network and and help us uh, you know continue forward. But uh, now on to you, sir Andrew Douglas. The uh, let's see, founded December 14, 2010, is AG Douglas Leasing LLC. Uh, we'll get to talk about that yeah, as an independent petroleum landman. Done several projects involving title work, leasing, and curative for EOG, Marathon, Double Eagle, Mongoose. Lewis Energy, Cinco Oil and Gas, Penn Virginia, BP America, and more. Uh, education starting c- coming out of Colorado at Boulder. So that's the Buffaloes, right? That's right. The Buffaloes. Deion Sanders. <laughs> oh, headlines man. lately. He's the new coach. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Sanders is now the new coach. Yes. All right. You're excited about football then? I am. You know, I haven't been excited about watching CU Boulder Buffalo football in many years, but now I am. Yeah, because Dion. Because yeah, prime time. That's what, yeah, maybe entertaining. <laughs> uh, starting your first uh, first work, working with FCIA Management Company, and then going to the ID, IDB Bank, International Capital Markets, and then Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi, Investment Banking. Uh, now, you know, how do you introduce yourself now? Duh. I'm a petroleum landman. I've got um, an independent uh, contractor. Uh, work with land companies. I also um, have some situations where I work directly with oil companies, um, and uh, I do the the title work. I tell you who owns the minerals. I tell you who owns the leasehold. Um, I do leasing, so I negotiate the leases as well. And I also work with attorneys uh, after all the um, the landman's work has been turned in. It's been analyzed by the attorney. The attorney sometimes has some legal issues they have to clean up. Yeah. And so I'll help them with that as well. How does someone get a hold of you? If they... um, I can be reached by email. And uh, it's agdouglas with two S's at gmail.com. And my phone number is uh, 210-459-4800. I'm right here in San Antonio. Um, I do have some 
land up in uh, Grosbeck, Gonzales, and uh, Imperial. So I can have satellite offices out there as well if necessary. But really, most of my uh, land, I can most of my work, I can do right at home, right uh-huh. here in San Antonio. So nice. Man, well, I got to learn a lot about you as an individual and like what you've gone through and, and listening to your stories with, uh, you know, your time in New York and and how that's gone. Obviously, the, the Twin Towers uh, situation being so close to that and, and experiencing something like that, man, I, it, that was very intense. And, and, and you brought me back. I appreciate you sharing those stories uh, with us. But then kind of how that's helped mold you and how you you let it motivate you and you let it speak to you and how you said, you know, I'm going to stay in New York, you know, that I'm going to be here to rebuild uh, after something like that. Yes, sir. Very, yeah, very inspirational. And then uh, teaching us what exactly is in a lease. How does the lease get put together and your thoughts on that and, and helping me with these fractions versus percentages <laughs> on leases. So I, I certainly learned a lot from you in this show. And I appreciate you uh, your feedback and kind of you going through how you see the industry going in the next five to ten years. What you want to be, right? how you want to build yourself in the next five, ten years, but also your, your, your take on where it's going. Uh, I enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. I did too. I appreciate you having me here. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oil field horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel to toe wellbore are 100% American made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. Uh, all right, man, let's start the, com- the conception part of the PB podcast. Andrew Douglas, I appreciate you taking time. Uh, to meet up on the river here and and uh, spend some time with the uh, PBE podcast, man. Tell us tell us a little about yourself. Thanks for having me here. Um, my name is Andrew Douglas. I'm 48. 48 years 48, young. 48 years young. Um, grew up in Texas, and uh, you know went to school in Colorado, uh, University of Colorado Boulder. I went there for one reason, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I love snow skiing. So uh, I enjoyed, uh, I was on the five-year program there, nice. undergrad, nice. <laughs> and uh, got a finance degree, went to um, New York City, and uh, just you know, worked in the- What uh, the heck took you to New York? Having that finance degree, and uh, I was interested in um, investing, and also have some uh, uh, family up there. Worked some different jobs in, in, in New York City. Um, the most meaningful ones were, you know, I started off at, um, well, one of my early jobs was a Foreign Credit Insurance Association. Kind of got me familiar with 
reading financial statements and uh, some of, a lot of it was in Spanish. So, um, you know, I was able to kind of pick up that skill reading financial statements in Spanish. <laughs> uh, but that kind of... Uh, got me motivated to, um, I was really interested in the job because it's international and started, you know, learning about international politics. And then from there, um, I went to work at uh, IDB Bank, which is Israel Discount Bank. And I was there for about five years and we did uh, international lending. Uh, my territory was um, Eastern Europe and Russia, wow. Kazakhstan. Wow. Uh, basically, what we did is, um, you know, we lent money to other banks, and then they lent money to the local population. So it was emerging market lending, and I was more on the uh, uh, research and analytical side than being, you know, the the business person. But I did get to go out there, wow. and I went to, you know, Austria, Hungary, Poland. Is that right? You're in your twenties or thirty? That was my twenties, right after college. Yeah. Oh man, what a great job! Uh, yeah, it was good. It, um, Russia, Kazakhstan, um, Turkey, and you're out there doing research. I'm out there talking to people because the the main risk when you're lending to banks, of course, you have to do you know have a good business, of course, but uh, out there in the emerging markets, a uh, political risk. If you run afoul of the local politics, then you know you could you could be gone in an instant. Your business is <laughs> shut if, down. Yeah, I mean they they can you know find a reason to you know take your business away or confiscate it for themselves. Um, so that's that political risk is the main risk. I, on the other hand, if um, if you're in good politically, you uh, open yourself up to uh, better uh, credit lines from the government. Like for example, if a government official owns the bank and he needs some money to, you know, for uh, for funding, then uh, that makes it easier to get uh, uh, loans. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And then a private versus a private individual in Russia who's on the wrong side of the, um, who's running afoul of the the local politics. Wow. So, so there's just, yeah. that, I mean, such higher risk. Uh, thinking about the private citizen trying to start a business versus someone who's a little bit more tied politically into the system who wants to start the same same style of business you're like all right you know both look like they're going to work but it just as as a as a financial risk or a risk aversion you're looking at the pol the, the one that's tied to politics a little deeper a little closer versus the the private citizen i mean that's just a simple way to look at it yes um my way to look at it is, is make sure you have good exit strategy <laughs> You know, if you get in, you build a business um, in Russia, for example, um, you know, you uh, you want to get out and take your profits and, you know, and, you know, wash your hands clean. Yeah. You don't want to be sticking around and, you know, uh, anger the wrong individual. And, you know, next thing you know, they'll take your business. I mean, it happens. It's, wow. it's, it's not like common occurrence. I don't know of many occasions where Americans went over there, started a business and had their business confiscated. But it does happen. You know, Sibneft. Sibnef, Siberian oil company. That's probably oh. the largest example. That was actually a Russian citizen. Um, but anyway, it was very interesting. It uh, you know kind of opened up my eyes about that whole area, um, how it works, and um, you know there was a big uh, in Kazakhstan. Uh, they have a really good, um, well-regulated banking industry, but uh, they had uh, a bank. I believe. I hope I'm saying the right one. I'm pretty sure. BTA Bank Tiranalem. 
uh, which was um, appeared to be a you know wonderfully run bank, and um, they had a guy come in there, and he uh, took a lot of the uh, the funds, and I don't think they went bankrupt, but uh, they may have, and that that caused a, a lot of headaches for uh, uh, international lenders. So you know, even in something, even in a place that appears to be well regulated. You know, you get the wrong person in there, in the behind the bank, mm-hmm. and you know, criminal basically is what happened. And uh, next thing you know, uh, you know, your bank is um, is you know uh, possibly going into bankruptcy, and all the lenders will you know lose money. So let's rock it back. You're working for for a, a international lending company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that- a bank. That we lent money to emerging markets. Where did the money come from for, for you? Where did your money Depositors, come from? Depositors, mm-hmm, mainly, and whatever kind of, uh, um, whatever kind of uh, loans that they had on their books. I, I couldn't tell you what kind of loans they had. So it was borrowed money. It was deposited money from individuals mm-hmm. or other companies. Yep. That's how banks are funded, right? Uh, mainly deposits and, and, and some, uh, some other funding. <laughs> And then we lend to emerging markets, and, and then they lend. you're running around Kazakhstan going, all right, I got all this money in the bank, and these, these people have agreed. They understand what's going on, right, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to take our money and go to a, another country and find businesses that you think is going to work in that market, and you're going to double my money, triple my money, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're going to provide some kind of return on my money. Yeah, it's all return. It's, you know, it's uh, fixed. It's a fixed... Uh, return so we what kind know, of percentages are we talking well, about just, just as an example depends what the local what the uh, interest rates are at the time so just as an example if we lend seven percent they take our money they lend it to the local population at 12 percent they get their uh, they get cut. paid back and they pay us back and then you know we maybe we will renew that loan or maybe we'll go somewhere else with the money but so then you're yeah. turning around and providing a five percent to the people who who funded that or are you providing a seven percent rate of return on that money to the people to so we'll lend it to the their bank their yep. local bank in russia or wherever seven percent yep they're they'll paying take you it, seven they'll lend it to their guys at, at say twelve percent as an example yep they'll get repaid yep. they'll make their money and yep. then they repay us and but you guys got to pay somebody out Right, you got to yeah, pay the right whoever fund funds us, you know. Our but a depositor, maybe you know, maybe they're just two percent. Wow. So you know, we have to pay them two percent. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Or, yeah. Whatever. That that's how it works. It's that's just, it's, it's, that's how business works. Yes, yeah, sir. For sure. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that was interesting. Then um, I did a little investment banking after after that. I, uh, um, I it's more research related and. Uh, it was a um, syndicated loan business where yeah, I've we heard buy this out term, loans. syndicated loans. I've heard this term. I don't know much mm-hmm. about it. Basically, pooling funds. Uh, banks get together and oh wow! Uh, just as an example, ten banks may uh, get maybe there's a um, a company that needs ten billion dollars to buy out another company. Yeah. So the banks will get and they they need to raise ten billion dollars to do it. Or yeah. They don't want to use their own money. They want to use banks' money. So the banks will pull together and wow. you know say so kind of 20 banks maybe we'll pull whoa. 10 billion dollars and and it now that deal thing, that that thing's called something else all these banks are leader behind rangers it, the, and whoa. uh yeah, there's different different um that's a syndication, syndication. yeah syndicate yeah we're a syndicate okay that's right so i did that for a couple years 
again, I was uh, on the, the research side of that. Um, and then, you know, I, I did that. But uh, even before I took that job, I knew I wanted to come back to Texas. Really? Yes. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> I kind of felt imprisoned there. Like I kind of felt like, you know, I was there for 10 years. Uh, I kind of felt like it was work prison. Because you go to New York City, you live in a closet. You know, uh, if it wasn't for Central Park there, I would have gone probably crazy. I mean, that was my outlet for nature. You know, you could go out. It's yeah, a Central cool Central Park's park. awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Guggenheim building right next to it. Yeah. That's you know, a pretty cool looking building. But yeah. it's just, you know, you can, you can get kind of lost in Central Park and feel like you're not in New York, which is crazy to think about. But... Yes. The trees are big yep. enough. The you know, there's enough topography. Like you can get you can get back in there and feels like nature. That's that's yeah. really that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it was great. Uh, I lived on the Upper West Side and um, Upper West Side. You know, I have all kinds of friends from all around the world. Uh, well educated people, smart uh, smart people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, worldly people who. Uh, you know, um, there's still some of my ski buddies to this day. Is that right? Um, yeah. So from New back. York City, how far are you away from skiing? <laughs> well, <laughs> they have, uh, you know, skiing in Vermont, which I didn't okay. do much of, unfortunately, because I was always working. <laughs> uh, they, have, uh, they have some ski resorts in, um, like uh, in New York. Uh, yeah, Hunter, which is horrible, I think, because it's just so crowded. Because everybody from New York City goes there. Whenever yeah. it's a good ski day, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. So the way to do it is to go in the, the middle of the week when everybody's at work. And right. They had some other resorts there. Just um, their names aren't ringing a bell. But um, what's the coolest resort you've ever got to, skiing wise? Um, let's see. I think Steamboat. Uh, well, I'm talking about you. Talking about it anywhere, anywhere. or up there? Anywhere. I think Steamboat is great. Where is that? Uh, just it's northern Colorado. Okay. And then um, I usually go to you know Breckenridge, Keystone. I got kids now. Key, to to uh, teach someone, Keystone is great. Is that right? Yeah, it's very convenient. What's what's the trick about skiing? What's uh, what's the trick here? What's Muscle memory. You just got to keep doing it, man. Damn it! So you just got to bite yeah. the bullet and go a few times. Yep. And you'll get it. Yep. You okay. got to just learn how to stop and you have to overcome that fear. You have to keep turning. That's the main thing. Turn, turn, turn. Don't, don't eat, don't, you know, clinch up and uh, stop. Yeah. You know, you got to keep, just keep turning. That's how you learn. Same thing with snowboarding. Even uh, though it may seem dangerous, you just have to keep turning. Yep. And you have to have your weight in the right place. That's the other thing. But. Yeah, no, some minor details there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> snowboard. I'm a horror once on the snowboard. Just absolutely. Uh, yeah, just a, you got to bust mess. your bust your head a few yeah. times. Oh yeah, make sure you have a helmet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're uh, you're skiing. You're doing your New York thing, but you you know you want to get back to Texas. Why? Um, man, uh, I miss the wide open sky. Um, I wanted to own land. Uh. I wanted it's it more of a nature thing, uh, you know, being in the city like that. Maybe I could have started over and gone out to a more rural community, but I figured I'll just go back to Texas. You know, I, I love Texas anyway. Um, yeah, I just feel more free here, um, and it's a uh, is less expensive. It's a less expensive place. You know, if I I wanted to have a family and you know to do that up there in New York and um, 
or New Jersey and, you know, start from zero, buy a house, all that kind of stuff, yeah. man, you're going to be, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not an inexpensive place to, to live. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very expensive compared to Texas. Of course, Texas is getting a lot more expensive each year. It seems yeah. like double digit inflation here, even before the, this recent inflation hike, especially down here in South Texas, ever since they started fracking, it's been 10%. Is that right? I think so. Wow. The numbers don't, the official numbers don't say that, but with all the people moving here and uh, yeah, ever since the fracking started, I've seen double digit inflation with just about everything. Wow. Every form of insurance, I mean, health insurance, of course, um, even um, my um, insurance on my home, um, homeowner's insurance and uh, food costs, yeah. you know, grocery stuff, everything's just been double digit wow. inflation. So back in New York, before you come to, to uh, Texas, what years are we talking about here? Let's see. Um, Approximately, I'm real bad about this, what year. Uh, so I got out of uh, college in 98, and so uh, I was there in New York from about um, 99 to about 09, and then I came back. I've been, been, back, been back since about 09. So were you, were you, you were in New York City when the towers got? I so. was. I was. Uh, so my uh, train stop is uh, the World Trade Center. What? Yeah, and um, that day, I actually went to work early, which was, was rare for me. I don't, yeah. I don't normally go to work early. I never did in corporate American jobs. I just, you know, whatever. <laughs> I just never got to work early. I just wasn't one of those guys. <laughs> but I did that day. I went 10, 15 minutes early, and I'm sitting at my desk on Rector Street, which is, you know, like two blocks away, uh, and, you know, f heard the first plane crash. Holy we smokes. all thought it was a Cessna or something like that. We didn't know it was a commercial. I mean, how loud was that impact? It, you could hear it. I mean, it was a big boom. And, and I just don't know. Like, a small plane's going to make a big boom, man. It didn't occur to us. It didn't register yet. And even when we went out, we went, I went down the elevator, and uh, there was a big commercial tire, uh, plane tire, Right, right there, no uh, way. hitting up against, leaning up against the building, one of one of the planes. No, and it way. still didn't register to me, and it still didn't register to me when I looked over and saw uh, a body. Oh my God! As flat as a pancake, that um, you know, only saw one body there, and I saw another body like that on the other side, but it still didn't register that this was a commercial jet until I went back up. And then, boom, the second one hit. And oh my that, gosh. that was it. I was already in you know, flight mode there. I, uh, I didn't say a word to anybody. I went down the elevator, and I started walking as fast as I could. I went over to the East River. Um, I walked past the Trade Center, and it's like raining um, different you know, paper and stuff like that's coming down. I didn't stick around. I went straight to the East River. There's a lot of people were out. You know, like ants all crowding the streets, and I just kind of weaved my way through everyone uh, and started walking north. And then I got to Midtown, and suddenly, when I'm in Midtown, about you know, uh, Penn Station area, 34th Street, all these people start running out of the building. And I said, You know, what happened now? And this girl tells me, Oh, the, uh, the Trade Center has fallen. And I didn't believe it. 
I said, um, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe there's a fire, maybe some floor, you know, maybe something happened, but I don't think the trade center fell out. They were all running out of the street to look downtown to see where the trade center used to be. Oh my gosh. So I'm still walking. How far are you away from this, the trade centers at this point? 34 blocks approximately. Cause um, you know, I was downtown and I walked 34 big blocks north and I'm still Each not block believing. is like a quarter mile kind of thing, or what's what's a block? A block is like a tenth of a mile. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I'm, you know what? You're a mile away. You're two. At least a mile away. You're a mile away. Yeah, at least this. probably more than that. I mean, I power yeah. walked. You know, I was like, I was walking as fast as I could. You know, and looking up in the air to see if there's another plane coming, whatever. But the most amazing thing was after these people ran out was uh, there was a truck parked on the side of the road and it had its doors open, had the radio turned up all the way. And it said a plane has now hit the Pentagon. So to me, that was the biggest moment where I was like, this is a, this is war. We're at a war right now. It's an attack. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I walked all the way up to 64th Street. And uh, checked my email and heard from all kinds of people that I hadn't heard from in years. And people, you know, sending you me right, emails, checking right. on me. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, I had um, some family over there in, in New Jersey, and so I got on the um, the train and I was gone. You know, I went. You went to Jersey. Yeah, I went to Jersey. I went to uh, spent a few weeks with Grandma. <laughs> Holy cow, man. Yeah, it was it was uh it was intense, you know. I uh <clears throat> I sat next to one guy. Um I had this other job at, um where I was doing interdealer brokering. I don't really get into it cuz uh I kind of more or less just sat in a seat <laughs> for a year you know, doing and I didn't really get into that job, but the guy next to me, he was a good interdealer broker and uh he went to um Cantor Fitzgerald, which is the top floor of the trade center. Uh, his name was James DeBlaze. Uh, he is interesting because he was a Dallas Cowboys fan. Hey, my kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, he ended up um, passing away because oh, the, the – um, so this guy who sat next to me for one year, you know, I got to know him very well, obviously. Uh, he went up to the top floor in Cantor Fitzgerald, and, you know, he, he died because the plane hit uh, below him. My other um, boss at the uh, trade credit – business um he left and he went to um uh, work for aeon in the other trade center building and when the first plane um hit he went took the elevator down to the uh bottom floor in the courtyard and then a plane hit right below his office and killed everybody in his office except oh him gosh. and whoever else was with him when they went down there oh my to the gosh, courtyard. yeah the so uh yeah, it Whoa. was pretty intense. Yeah, dude. Like, what what did that do uh, to like your your mentality uh, as like a as as a young man like that? After that, did it did it inspire you in some strange ways or like it did motivate you? I it motivated. Me. I was uh, thinking about leaving, and instead, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna stay right here. Oh. And uh, yeah, I ended up uh, staying there for another uh, eight years or so. Um, you know. It, Instead of uh, just leaving and getting out of there, you know, I wanted to be uh, to be part of the regrowth there and, and not let those people dictate, you know, the rest of my life because of, you know, they decided to come over there and uh, 
attack. be terrorists. Yeah, and yeah. uh, I wasn't going to let them, you know, ruin ruin my life and ruin the area. And, and what, what was what was interesting was um, after the uh, attack, you would think that the housing market would uh, plummet. Would plummet, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. And you know. Um, I thought, you know, gosh, uh, one one thing at, that may come out of this is I may actually, you know, be able to buy a place here, you know, because I'm I'm going to stay, and yeah. uh, I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and buy a place because you know there's probably an opportunity to buy a place here now because uh, the place stinks and there's smoke everywhere, and but uh, they cut the interest rates, and that to me was a uh, <clears throat> I saw the power of interest rates for the wow. first time. So they cut interest rates. Just in New York City? Or? No, this is federal. Uh, they this cut is... the Fed funds rate. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah. They huh. cut it to like zero. And so guess what happened to the housing market? It I got mean, way more expensive. And there was a... It, wow. It, yeah. All the properties, despite a terrorist event. Yeah. Because funding was so cheap. Yeah. You get uh, money basically for free. Piled in there. And so there was no opportunity for me to buy a place. I was still a renter. But... You know, I guess I had other well, things to worry about, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, so you go back to work, like how long does it, how long did it take before you're back in the office and, and back kind of doing your thing? You know, it only took about, uh, three weeks. Wow. Um, even though we were right there and it was, a um, you know, a, um, I forget the exact term they use for the zone, but, um, it was, um, you know, smoke everywhere and it's in the, it smelled really bad. It smelled like a burning building. Whoa. But they relocated us from downtown to Midtown. Okay, I see. And uh, yeah, so I, I worked there for in Midtown for a while. And what were you doing after the uh, the Trade Center attack? What was your job? At the time of the Trade Center, um, I was working for FCIA, Foreign Credit Insurance Association, where I was um, I was a underwriter. Uh, basically, what they do is. Um, whenever a company exports product to say, you know, a company in Texas sells product to a company in Mexico, for example, and they're waiting to get repaid. That's the insurance. Um, that's the risk that we insured. If they didn't repay, it was repayment risk, then we would pay. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So we have to analyze all these companies overseas. Make so sure that they're, you know, they're going to pay their bills. They can repay. Yeah. We had to analyze their credit risk. Yeah. Wow. So that's what I was doing at that time. And then I went from there to that international banking job. Wow. Now, it's interesting. You talked about the power of uh, interest. Uh, you said the power of interest, interest rate, rates. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're kind of seeing the other, other thing right. going this way. What do you, mm-hmm. what's, what's your thoughts now that you're seeing it, it go the other way? Right. Well. Um, and has it happened yeah. before? I mean, it's happened. I know in the 90s or whatever, my mm-hmm. parents were buying a house at like 12, 15 percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know it's, but, but since 2001, when you saw it go to zero, mm-hmm. uh, is this the first time it's going, it's starting to, to, to just peg? Well, in my opinion, they should have raised interest rates a long time ago, Interesting. Uh, but for political reasons they're uh, they've kept them so low because they want to, you know, show the, uh, the populace that GDP increased by 3% or whatever numbers they want. Uh, yeah. they should have raised interest rates a long time ago. I think uh, cheap money is never cheap. Cheap money is never a good idea. And zero percent interest on on money is it just causes bubbles. 
So they should have raised interest rates a long time ago, but for political reasons, they didn't. And this is Bush administration, Obama administration, Trump administration, all of them. Wow. Um, they just never, they should have raised interest rates. Yeah. And the idea of, of not doing that, you, so they, they, they suppress the interest uh, on the money. It, do- it props up the stock market. They keep interest rates low. People keep, keep uh, putting, putting money, money into the, into the, into stock the market. market. Oh. I mean, there's some things that come out of it that are, that are good. I mean, there's more opportunities for uh, technology companies. They tend to invest more, uh, I, I believe, sure. some... Uh, some um, yeah, but if it, I mean, that gets me thinking about different things. If if the if you're propping it up and you're spending money because it's it's just kind of there, how much of that is waste? Oh, versus- ton. Private equity. <laughs> uh, you know, no offense to anyone, <laughs> no offense, but uh, pro- private equity. Um, I mean, I've I've seen some waste uh, from private equity. Um, in the oil industry, um, the way that they uh, spent, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now and um, I work with different, different land companies and so land companies, they, um, they're contracted with the oil companies and I've seen some of these projects and uh, they could have been more efficient with the way they're, they've been spending money, that's for sure. Um, operations and just buildings and like equipment like or what do you what do you probably mean? all of that but i'm speaking just from the land land part of doing that doing the um the land work more economically oh. um so okay yeah so um you know whenever these interest rates go up there's less opportunities probably for uh private equity because there's not so much money that's flowing to them now. There are people were, you know, they they can put money, people can put money in the bank now and get a, a better, a decent rate of return on their money there. You're right. That's part of it. Um, but as these interest rates uh, increase, funding costs increase, and um, the natural result of that is uh, the housing market is not going to be as robust, and that's already happening. You know. Um, yeah. Prices here in San Antonio, even which is a pretty conservative market, I think they're down, you know, twenty percent off their highs. Uh-huh. And I think places like San Antonio, <clears throat> with all the people who are moving here between here and Dallas yeah. on I thirty five, yeah, I don't think any monster crash is coming here. Okay, um, I think you know probably if anything, five ten years from now, our homes probably twice as much as they are wow. right now i would say wow 10 years from now i think that's that's fair to say wow just, half a million dollar house is gonna be a million dollar home i think so holy yeah, shit, yeah i do man i, I think really? that's very reasonable to assume holy with because shit. all these people were moving here um so you know there's that demand uh that's great but um i personally don't like paying property taxes so <laughs> You know, that's a big deal in Texas. It sure is. Uh, <laughs> if it were up to me, um, my property taxes in my home grow at 1% a year. That'd be fine with me as long as my investments, uh, they're growing at 10, 15% a year. Uh, that way I don't have to pay all these property taxes. Um, yeah, the way, the way I, I'm invested, uh, I, I like this. Uh, I like the Berkshire Hathaway stock because they don't pay dividends. It's all um, it's all just growth, uh, price appreciation. So there's no uh, tax bill that comes along with it hmm. as the stock grows. 
Yeah, I don't like paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I so. mean that's it, it's I think goes for every, most people, uh, and that's interesting. So the Brookshire uh, Hathaway stock is is it like a bundle of things or is it, it is okay it's it's you know warren buffett's business um and charles charlie munger um it's their a business what do you mean their business well they're, they're it's a bundle of all of their different businesses uh that it's kind of a conglomerate of their business they're mainly you know insurance but they they uh um, have a big stake in uh, chevron i believe they um mid-american oxy yeah, I believe they have Chevron. I may be mistaken with that, but um, so it's energy, it's tech. They it's have yeah they, insurance. It's, they have all different. They have uh, Geico is one of their big businesses. Wow, uh, C's candies. Uh, they have all kinds of stuff. And so all those individual businesses are making their own returns and and their own cash flow and all that stuff, and 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 somehow that's all circled into this one stock. The value of this one stock. Yes, yeah. There's you know the parent company is Berkshire Hathaway. Okay. And Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger take all that money and they invest it, and they do not pay dividends to us. So there, the stock just keeps growing. It has over the last. 30 years has done very well, although it hasn't done great uh, ever since uh, interest rates have been low, actually. Um, so uh, that's why I like that stock, just because there's no taxes to pay because they don't pay dividends. But it's the price appreciation has been pretty consistent over time, and that's what I like about it. Hmm. How do you actually, how, how does one go about getting these stocks? How do you buy these stocks? It's ticker symbol BRK slash B. It's, uh, you just buy the stock, you just, you know, have your, uh, um, brokerage account, and then you just buy the stock, just like you buy. You have Apple. to pay for a brokerage account. Um, yeah, but um, n- n- no, you just have to fund a brokerage account. Okay. So, for example, I use Charles Schwab, and uh, I don't even think they charge for um, transactions now. Maybe it's like five dollars for, for to buy a stock, and then you know, just over time, you get you have a nice nest egg as long as you've invested. Decently, I mean, you can even just buy an index fund, which has done great over huh. uh, you know twenty years. You just keep investing, keep investing. When the market's high, when the market's low, when the market's not doing anything, just keep investing. And twenty years. So you're putting money into Charles Schwab, the brokerage mm-hmm. account, mm-hmm. and then they're allowing you to buy a Brookshire Hathaway stock at some amount plus five dollars per stock. Yeah, that's their transaction cost. And now you hold that. Mm-hmm. You hold what? A piece of paper that says. You get it in the mail, and it's like, hey, thanks for buying no, 10 stock. Or, no, I look at my computer, and I see that, you know, how many shares of stock. I don't actually get the paper stock. They don't really do that anymore. It's just, um, yeah, you just own a piece of the equity pie, which is a piece of the company. So you buy 10 stocks, you own like 0.0001% of this company because yeah, you got yeah. 10 other stocks. Mm-hmm. Just like buying any other stock, Apple, Amazon, whatever it may be. Okay. That seems pretty simple. As long as you have enough money, and you've got to have a decent amount of money to put into these things, right? Well, you know, what I tell everybody, I think everybody should be invested in the stock market. And I say the first first thing you've got to do is just open up a brokerage account and put a dollar in there. Get yourself started. Right. And then, you know, be consistent over time. Just keep, keep investing. Keep investing every, huh. whether you put money now in that, every six months or every month or whatever it may be, just keep doing it. 
just something and then you'll you'll have a nest egg it'll it should grow over time as long as you decent investor in the stock market yeah that's how you beat inflation by the way that's how your money beats inflation your money just keeps growing right so if that grows if your equity grows at 12 percent and inflation is three to five percent you're beating inflation you're right you're making seven percent on that or you got seven percent over inflation on that yeah right something like that Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of that stuff is just, uh, I don't know, just, I just not in, never, never grown into it. Never really had anybody in my life saying like, Hey, here's kind of how it works. I'd be so, glad to, to walk you through it. If you ever, yeah, no, yeah. I'm certainly interested yeah. in getting your sure. thoughts on that. Uh, for me, it was, you know, I, I, I had parents that just, they just worked, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They just paid in as W2s their whole lives. And, and, uh, one was both when we were in the union and so I guess I had this, this, or I do have this, uh, this, for me, a reality or a truth is, you know, your own, your future is going to be only as good as the work you put in. That's right. And so I'm, I'm building companies and I'm, I'm taking all this risk, uh, but it's, it's in me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of stress and a lot of things that come with that, that aren't fun to deal with. But I just have this kind of. I guess that mentality keeps me away from thinking, Oh, I'm going to invest in Warren Buffett. You know, mm-hmm. that, that guy's, you know, doing it, you know, or, uh, and that's what the stock market feels like to me. I'm, I'm investing in someone else mm-hmm. and their work ethic, their ability to do things straight, you know, straight and, and not, not, uh, not tank companies because things happen that way. So it's a big kind of mystery. And then I watched, of course, the Madoff series, mm-hmm. the Bernie Madoff series, or the Friedman the, oh man, this, SBF, this, the most this, recent one. Yeah, the yeah. new one. Uh, and I'm going, okay, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on, but I think it's mm-hmm. a big old game and I'm not really in it. Right. So I'm going to let, let that kind of go. Yeah. I can see why that would turn you off. And <laughs> it is actually, I believe, people who really get rich, sure, they have money in the stock market, but you know they're the ones who really are doing what you're doing, growing your own business. Uh, it doesn't hurt though to have a you know put a little money aside and leave it alone. Yeah. And you know watch it grow over time, even if it's you know an insignificant amount. It, right. It's, it's good to have a nest egg back there. I I believe. Yeah. No, I think that logic does make sense, and I'd be yeah super interested to to learn more from you about about that as we develop our our friendship and and maybe even working together. You know, so that'll be that'll be cool. I'm I'm interested in that. Uh, you you talked about being in in New York during two thousand eight two thousand nine. Then you moved to Texas. I mean that's the the biggest financial crisis on Wall Street since the beginning of Wall Street, arguably, or like or since the Depression. Like, are the recession in the seventies? You're right. It was uh, it was amazing um, the sh- how shocking it was. I mean. Um, you have uh, you know a lot of these guys who work for these places um, that are supposed to be cream of the crop, you know Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, just like a snap, just gone wow. because they were over leveraged. Um, and yeah, it was. I would say it was almost as shocking as 9/11 to be right next door to Lehman Brothers, which I was at the time I was working for a. Japanese bank, very conservative, doing our thing, you know, syndicated loans. And then, you know, to see everyone from Lehman Brothers 
walking on you know out in the street with their uh box their of box yeah just uh you know Whoa. just fired you know done it, it was it was very shocking wow it, it sure was um somebody was just recently telling me the difference between now and then is something about like the uh the way the money is 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 borrowed in companies like that now there's there's like uh there's something i can't remember exactly how this goes but it might make sense to you that the so like that company right was was their own company doing their own thing and they weren't really backed at at some point they were just backed to to a wall of cash flow and and borrowed money but now the banks or the the way that the borrowed money is attached to that company uh you can reorganize the business under like some new bankruptcy schedule thing that that basically gives you gives the company and gives the situation time to reorganize all that debt and all those mistakes and all that waste so that there's not in the future there's not going to be the company's done sounds like a, what you're describing is a chapter 11 bankruptcy which that, that's been around for a while chapter okay. 7 is when you know you liquidate okay but the chapter 11 will will give it's you this time reorganization to, giving you time or because the banks are haircut on your debt yeah you know, yeah that's because so, that. that's interesting so that is kind of that that's kind of way th where things are going or where things are at oh that that's been around for a while it's okay. just um it, it just depends on how how much the company has been ruined <laughs> if uh if it if it really has no hope then you know just liquidate chapter seven if it's something that can be an ongoing concern then they'll do a chapter 11 and we'll do of course the can, equity yeah. the people anyone who owned the stock the equity people with chapter 11 they get wiped out okay so they go to zero and then the uh whoever um their creditors were um, they'll lose, typically lose um, some money there. But not all the money. In, you know, in of that. course, guess who gets fees, though? Uh, the, the investment bankers do when they do the, oh, I forget the term now, but it's basically the bankruptcy loan. Um, there's fees there. Um, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, DIP, I believe. Uh, yeah, whatever, I can't think of the name of it now. It's been, it's been 10 years since I've been in the business. So, so um, it's, it's some, so that transition of, of major debt getting bought and re repackaged in a different way, there's someone taking off the top of, of those transactions is what you're saying. Yeah, the bankers get fees. They, they do the same thing. They syndicate these you know, bankruptcy loans, and then they, they get fees for doing that as well. So, yeah. <laughs> so I don't care. They got fees. But, you know, their, their very own bank may have lost, you know, um, a, well, what they do is uh, they'll only hold. So these, these banks that loan say a billion dollars they yeah. don't keep the billion dollars on their books they sell it off and because they don't want to be exposed to all of that risk maybe they they have you know credit limits where, where they can only hold a certain amount of exposure so they'll sell it off they'll reduce their risk that way hmm. and it's off their books now they're you know they don't have anything maybe they lent the money but they sold the debt off to some other banks or wow. hedge funds or wow. um, insurance companies i believe can buy it um and then you know they'll have more capacity to do more loans and get more fees wow did you uh, ever run into bernie madoff 
I did not ever run into Bernie Madoff. You never ran into that guy? (laughs) No, uh, no. um, There's so many people working the finance industry, and you know, I uh, no, he, I I wasn't in those kind of circles, man. I was like 25 years old, right out of you know, University of Colorado. That guy was like the chairman of the the whole thing, wasn't he? He was like like the guy. Yeah, well, uh, the stock market. There were, you know, look look how far this guy. SBF, I can't think of it. Sam Bankman Friedman, whatever his mm-hmm. name was, this uh, crypto guy. Yeah. I mean, the guy looked like Jeff Spicoli. Uh, familiar with Jeff Spicoli? No. <laughs> um, he, uh, you know, was, he just uh, created a fraud. And um, I mean, I, that's what it looks like to me, at least. Uh, he had no controls, and uh, so many people just uh, went right around, went went with it um you know tom brady um oh no um a lot of uh a lot of people who uh were uh considered to be good investors um they lent him money and uh it was all just a charade looks like uh, but a lot of smart people you know what happens is a lot of people they don't that fear of missing out fomo right. is what they call FOMO. it right? yeah so you have so many people who are, you know, they want to, they see these people getting rich. Right. And they say, you know, um, there's a lot of smart people doing that. And, you know, all yep. these influential people. Yep. Um, you know, they, but those influential people who are peddling it, they're getting fees. They're like one of the guys, I can't think of his name right now, but he got $15 million for uh, marketing this whole FTX wow. um, market. And wow. So he, once you once you get the guy out on the street corner and he starts getting good sales and people are walking up and then you got the rest of the whole block going, what's going on over yeah, there? Exactly. Same same sort of thing. Some mm-hmm. of those early buyers are now turning around Exit. going, hey, I'm getting a I'm getting a cut. <laughs> and now they start helping to sell. They're getting mm-hmm. a cut. That ramps up well, quick. Uh, that's what I'm that talking about with, with these. Uh, you know, whether you're. Um, Starting a business in Russia, <laughs> all these high, high risk things. The uh, the thing is, is to get out or reduce your investment so that you uh, don't lose any money. So, Interesting. you know, you invest ten million. You know, maybe sell half once it's worth twenty million. You know what I mean? So you get yeah, your money back, right? And then let it ride, and then see what happens. Yeah. Keep rolling. Yeah. Interesting. So, what's the difference in your opinion? Uh, you know, internationally investing. Uh, versus in in the in the United States investing investing when it comes to the individual or a bank or or whatever right your your mm-hmm. what's your opinion on that? My opinion is to keep your money right here in the United States. Um, now maybe there's some exceptions maybe you know London <laughs> England okay, uh, but if the uh, if the situ if the polit- if there's political risk you got to look at the political risk when you're investing overseas because um even in mexico you know i mean not that far away right i mean they nationalize the oil industry right so again if you're going to go into uh emerging markets i would just say you know have an exit strategy you know once once you make a certain amount of money uh get out um unless you want to stomach the political risk and you know take the risk that you could lose everything because um you could yeah yeah, the political risk is definitely uh, interesting, you know, charted, uncharted territory in some of these things. Like if they start building, 
something in Mexico that seems like a great investment. They're, they're building infrastructure. They're they're putting people to work, and then and you someone like you is going in there and doing the research, going, okay, how, who's writing the rules and regs between the government and the people that are bringing in that money to build the jobs and all that stuff, and you got the 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 drug situation and the cartels that are that are in, involved in that. How the heck do you actually get the research done and figure out what's really going on? Or do you always just kind of, you're just kind of, you're, you're assessing what you can and there's a lot that you don't know in, in international research like that with political risk. That's right. Um, I think uh, one good way uh, to profit off of it is to be uh, like here in San Antonio, the head of uh, Lewis Energy uh, he's a consultant and, uh, and I read an article that he got paid. He gets paid a million dollars a year to be a consultant. So there you go. You get paid a million dollars a year and you have no, uh, no investment there. That's one way to go about it. Uh, not huh. to lose any money, but, uh, yeah, if you want to, uh, invest in any kind of equity, then you, uh, overseas, uh, you definitely have to look at the political risk. Interesting. Yeah. Or keep I, it here. I mean, there's political risk here in the United States, too. Yeah. But, you know, you, you're you more aware of what it is here than what it is out there. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if you're investing in Russia, you know, they don't even have a free media out there. So you, maybe you won't get all the information. Right. But what I did, like when I worked for uh, um, uh, IDB, Israel Discount Bank, because I got picked up the phone and I called correspondent bankers and talked to them and said, hey, what's going on? Who really owns this bank? Oh, mm. it's one of the government officials and the Kremlin owns it. Okay, that's probably pretty safe. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, not necessarily though. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you kind of, that's how that's I got a feel for right. uh, whether or not we should invest in that bank in Kazakhstan or not. Right. You know, who owns it? Right. That's, that's the first thing. Wow. Yep. Man, interesting. All right, let's get into the 10 years. Let's do the drill down segment of the PB podcast. Um, let's do your, you know, where, how did you get into oil and gas? What, what's going on here? So when I left New York, I had no job out here in uh, Texas. I just was like, you know what? I'm just going to go out there and I'll figure it out, which is, I've, I've kind of always rolled that way, you know, at least when I was single. Yeah. <laughs> not anymore maybe but uh yeah so uh i just kind of you know rolled into texas and uh i said you know i don't know what i'm gonna do but uh I, i've always had a fascination with maps i said you know what i'm gonna be a surveyor i'm gonna i'm gonna be poor for a good five ten years and i'm all right with that i just i just want to be happy i want to be outside um you know i don't have any kids at the moment or i wasn't i wasn't married so I ended up going to surveying school in Tyler, Texas with 19 year old country boys around me. <laughs> I, went from, I went from Rockefeller Center, an investment banking job to Tyler, Texas, you know, with, uh, with some good old boys around me uh, learning about surveying. And I, I did that for about uh, one and a half semesters. And I was just talking to a guy in the oil business and I told him what I was doing um, you know, I had a strong research background, yeah. 10 years of it in New York, and um, now I was learning about mapping and everything like that. And I told him, I said, I'm prepared to be poor for the next five years because, you know, I think this is something I'd like to do. And he told me, you know, I tell you what, be in Carrizo Springs on Monday 
and you'll already have a high-paying job, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy this job. It's called a petroleum landman. Wow. Yeah, and I had just got through buying a new washer, dryer, exercise equipment. I mean, I just stocked my apartment in Tyler, and uh, over the weekend, I got on a Craigslist, sold everything, and because I had no attachments, you know, yeah. I, I just got in my truck and drove down to Carrizo Springs and kind of the rest is history. I is just started. Right? Man, that is cool. So now you're in Carrizo Springs and you're a landman. That's right. Yeah. For a petroleum yep. company. Yes. Well, I was working for the land company. I was con I was contracted with the land company. Okay. The land company's contracted with the oil company. Actually, I don't even think they were contracted with the oil company. I think what they were doing at the time is they were buying leases, buying oh. oil leases and flipping them. So buying so, leases that already had an operator, already had production? No, oh. no. Uh, this was uh, virgin territory. Uh, there was no production on it. We were just buying the lease and then flipping that lease to someone else, whether it was the oil company or someone else who was another flipper, another intermediary, and eventually you know, making money that way, just selling it at a higher price. And uh, what happens a, a lot of times is these uh, leases expire, and so they don't even, they don't even go into production. And then another person goes out and leases and starts the whole process over again until eventually, hopefully, an oil company uh, takes the lease, buys the lease, and, and drills it. Wow. So you're going out and finding the mineral owner in an area that, that has no value coming from their minerals. Well, um, you know, they take things into consideration like, oh, there's a well that's, uh, you know, one mile away. to the east of here and another one to the west of us, another one to the south, and no one's leased this area. So we feel like someone's going to buy this lease from us if we lease it. So what I would do is um, I would do the title work. You know, that's part of being a petroleum landman is, is making sure the title is right. So we would find out who owns the minerals and we would offer them uh, bonus money to sign the lease. And then in that lease, there'd be, you know, different provisions like royalties, wow. the main thing, the terms, a three-year term. Wow. Is it be a, uh, held by, if it's held by production forever, that's all in there? right? Uh, well, we would have to investigate that because let's say that that section of land, um, you know, 50 years ago, the person who owned those minerals and the minerals to the West of it where there's production yeah let's say that's all on the same lease 50 years ago yeah and it, that all went into production 50 years ago if that's the case then there's nothing to lease in our section because it's already held by production on that it's already oh, held, held that shit. lease is holding it wow yeah so you, that's one of the first things that you need to check before you go hire a bunch of people to go out there and you know start running all the all the minerals on on everything and really uh, researching it thoroughly first just do a lease check see if it's already held by production wow yeah. that's all at the courthouse it used to be uh, I mean the uh, information is there at the clerk's office yeah um, and now it's uh, a lot of it's online and you know you go to the you go to a, lo a local title company and you know that that reduces your um your cost, I believe it's efficient. If it's a good title company, you can get most of the instruments there, but then you got to analyze all the instruments and, you know, figure out, do the when math. When you say instruments, you're talking like different documents? Documents. Okay. Yes. And then figure out who owns the minerals that way. Wow. And who owns uh, maybe some royalties cut out of that. Um, you know, maybe someone sold just the royalty 
And then um, if it is held by production, there's things you got to look for, like someone owns an override out of the leasehold part of it, out of the out of the lease. They yeah. trade the lease also. So interesting. Now they this is back out. in 2012. So. 2012, you you started it in in the industry. It's 2010. Okay. Yeah, 2010. Um, yeah. So I've been doing this for you know 12 years 12 now. 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. So and right before the the kind of the big boom of the horizontals. That's right. <laughs> uh, just just start taking off, and um, that's when that's when I got in. Yeah, so this was a great time to get in because uh, there was plenty of work and. Yeah, and 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 vertical, you know, vertical well leasing is a is kind of uh a lot more of a challenge because you can you got a 640 acre uh section one mile by one mile basically which are now the common lengths of a horizontal well Mm -hmm. is one mile by one mile uh and uh and and but you go from vertical where you're going like all right i'm gonna drill this 160 Mm -hmm. or even a 40 acre yeah sure Mm -hmm. (laughs) to i'm gonna take this whole section because somebody might just want to put a horizontal through this whole thing you know, one well is going to go through 640 or at least half a 640 on one side of that. That's that's a big difference for leasing up acreage in hopes that, you know, somebody might drill a piece of this thing. Right. And um, someone who's hoping for, you know, the Omega horizontal well. And um, if you're, you know, a smaller company and you just want to drill a 40-acre well, you can always, in the lease, say... Um, you know, maybe you want shallower depths. Maybe the um, maybe the horizontal is you know ten thousand feet down below. So you can you can cut that cut those depths out of the lease. You can say I just want this forty acre place right here, and uh, we only want to go down to seven thousand feet, and so we'll release anything that's below eight thousand feet or whatever it may mm. be that you want in the lease. Uh, so mm. th- so there's ways that uh, you can structure a lease and hopefully you can um, get everybody leased if, if they wanted a horizontal and that's not what you have to offer. Yeah. What'd you learn during uh, the, you know, that, that horizontal boom and now looking back and kind of what you're doing now? You know, we talked about interest rates before. Um, to me, uh, this was amazing in a different way. Um, I thought that I was just amazed that it carried on for so long, uh, that oil stayed so high. I, you know, it's all supply and demand at the end of the day. And, you know, a lot of that is whatever uh, whatever Saudi Arabia chooses to do, with however much oil they, you know, the cartel puts on the market or not. Um, but I was amazed that it, that it went for so long. I mean, hmm. um, it was great because... At the time, I think Russia was the top producer in, uh, or R- Russia and Saudi Arabia were the top producers. And it enabled us to um, become a top producer. You know, I think actually we may be even number one. I haven't checked in a while. Um, but it enabled us to, you know, because we're such a large consumer of oil. Right. Um, it really energized the oil industry here and made us less reliant on foreign sources of oil uh, so um, but at the same time um, the profitability of these horizontal wells again last time I checked it kind of reminds me of the airline industry if you put 
the entire industry together and uh, look at the profit and loss, the income statements, uh, they haven't made a single dime in the airline industry. <laughs> They're negative. They've uh, negative profitability. What? And with, if you do that with, yeah, if you do that with horizontal, uh, horizontal wells and you tally all them up, the profitability is slim to none uh, in an aggregate. So the, the, there's the, the economics of horizontal wells um, haven't been all that strong in right. an aggregate, yep. just like the airline industry. And so uh, after a while, um, you know, the investors have to say, okay, well, um, just pay me a dividend <laughs> you know, for, the, for the big, the large companies. Uh, they, want their, their, they want their money back. Don't keep investing in this. And that's exactly what's happened. The oil, big oil companies, instead of investing in new wells lately, They've been uh, giving their shareholders higher dividend payments because that's kind of at their request. There's this pressure, you know, you guys are not making good returns on this money, so give it back you know, wow. through, through a dividend. Wow. And that's what's happened. Yeah, I had uh, Tad Wallace on the show, CEO of uh, uh, Chem Universal Chemical Solutions, uh, doing some real interesting stuff with older horizontal wells going in there and, and not refracking necessarily, but certainly... Uh, pumping down a mixture of uh, propane and butane, which has this really interesting chemical and physical reaction down in the reservoir, and he's he's bringing these wells back to life. And these things, he and he said seventy thousand horizontal wells are doing like twenty barrels a day or less. Mm -hmm. I mean, wow. Yeah, the production falls off like a rock after, <laughs> I don't know if it's three or six months, but, you know, or maybe it's a year. I don't remember what exactly it is. But once you get over that yeah. window of really purging the area, <laughs> they right. start, production starts to, it drops yeah. rapidly. And so yeah. these people who, you know, got all this money thinking it was going to last forever, well, you know, you better hope they rework it or whatever they need to do. But because uh, their checks are, you know, they're, they dropped dramatically. You know, they were making all this money in the first, in the early months, and, you know, they thinking that it's going to last, and they bought a new car, and <laughs> whatever they did with that money, bought a boat, whatever. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of them, it's a wake-up call. Yeah. Uh, once a year or two went by, and the production's nothing compared to what it used to be. Yeah. That goes for the the mineral owner, right? The mineral owners, the mineral at, owners, yeah, yeah. and like, the oil company too. You right, know, you sunk all that money in it. They, it really, really hits them. I mean, they're the ones who put up all you know ten million dollars to drill right. that well. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. Real interesting how that's developing, and it 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 was what's what's interesting to me, and we can go into the completion part of this but i want to talk more about leasing and get your take on on land but one thing i want to want to mention is that you know america's ability to generate uh energy is second to none i mean we we have the technology the hand, the people that have that have done the fracking for so long now that horizontal drilling and fracking wells you, I'd, I'd argue there's no other country that comes close to to being able to do that in their own resources. I agree, but it doesn't actually make you know money at the end of the day. So that is an interesting place for uh, you know global politics or certainly 
um, what's going to happen with supply and demand with, with oil and gas, because at the end of the day, you got to make money. You know, this is capitalism and, and, uh, the, the, the industry or the, uh, the economy is ran on at the end of the day, making money. Um, and there's a big issue there, as you obviously pointed out with simple logic, like if you just you put the whole industry and aggregate the, the horizontal wells performance economically, not okay. But we generated a ton of energy and we became energy independent, came number one in the leader of, of ga natural gas, certainly, and oil, arguably, for a little while there, at least. Uh, is, is that all going to come back because prices are right? Are we going to do that all again just because the prices are right? I don't know. You have to have the right political climate to encourage investment. And right now, uh, we don't have that in the right. current administration. But look what a huge mistake that was. Because, you know, we quit encouraging investment. And if you stop investing in oil you put yourself at a, at a risk. Um, I don't even want to call it defense risk, but uh, security risk. Um, if uh, you stop producing oil, I mean, you know, if you, and if you go to war, <laughs> you're putting yourself at a huge security risk. You got to have oil. Good you know, imagine. we have war doesn't run on renewables. Right. You know, uh, so, right. Um, yeah. The, yeah the it's definitely a security risk there. The elementary, elementary school, you know, might be able to, or the high school down the street might be able to run off some solar, you know, panels for parking shade plus energy or whatever. But you're right. Yeah. The, the infrastructure certainly doesn't. And then the, the call for war certainly doesn't uh, run off renewables. So you need energy. You need to be able to generate that energy really quickly and efficiently. And, and I know we, we can do that. I'm, I'm, there's no question in my mind that, you know, we, we could get back there, but I, it's like, is it $200 oil? Like there's definitely, I think a, uh, a number. And I don't think it's 120, 130 that even starts getting this going again. Well, now I think that I'm trying to remember what the break even cost is for fracking. I think it's as low. It depends on the operator. It depends yeah. where you are. Uh -huh. you know, if you're in the Permian Basin or somewhere else where, you know, it's, uh, your drilling costs are a lot higher going through thick rock, but I think, like, uh, for some operators, if I'm not mistaken, I think the break-even cost was as low as uh, $35, $40 a barrel. So, yeah. um, you know, when I was talking about aggregate, I'm talking about the past. So now they've, the operators have become more efficient over yeah. time. They've figured out ways to do that. So yep. I don't know. Maybe now that they've become more efficient over the next 10 years, it won't be like the airline industry. It may be maybe they will be cash flow positive and showing profits over right. the next 10 years because they've improved the technology so much. Yep. I don't know, but, uh, drilling efficiencies. And, and that I think is, is definitely a, a big wake up to the industry. They're, they're, they're able to, to set a drill rig, drill a hole, set casing, you know, do all that stuff faster than ever. I mean, it's, it's definitely going real fast, but the performance, the performance of these wells is not getting better. Okay. They so, probably already hit the sweet spots anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's definitely going to, they're going to stumble their way into more sweet spots because it's, they're strip mining. You know, that's, that's mm -hmm. essentially what we're doing is strip mining the, the subsurface of this fluid. 
So they'll, they'll eventually work their way down to the southern parts of the Permian Basin and the, and the northern parts of the Permian Basin. There's all kinds of dr- running room, and there's, there's not a lot of money and not a lot of good performance going back in and recompleting things, you know, putting $10 million back into a well that's already there and refracking it. Right. The, the performance of those don't look like they're, they're not nearly getting back to the rates they were when they, when they do the initial frack. You know, that initial release of energy is a big deal. Mm-hmm. But I think you're absolutely right, and and I believe there is technology out there that can help us with the decline curve mitigation. It shouldn't drop like a rock. What's going on there? Um, what are we missing? What are we missing? I think there's ways to flatten that out, and maybe there's ways to to increase the IPs, you know, and and get back to these thousand plus barrel a day IPs. And then yeah, and then we're we're ready to go when the prices are right. I, I believe that, but it's not today. I don't think we're there today. I think it's still a hodgepodge of like, what the hell's really going on? Yeah. You know, who's 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 getting consistent results and who's really um, the company that's that's really buying in and taking the risk that's saying, okay, we're gonna figure this out. You know, we're gonna keep going with this. Uh, it's a dicey time, I think, in the, in that part of the industry. Yeah, com- completions. Um, you know, that's. Uh not my forte, but uh, I know that um, I believe that there, that the, there's quite a lot of uh, shut-in oil wells, horizontal oil wells right now. Just I don't know what price per barrel they're waiting to turn them back on. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm not um, I'm not real well schooled in what makes them decide to yeah get that well producing or not so yeah. Yeah, well it's sure. probably some science experiments too this the shutting in and waiting uh the reservoirs uh, fill themselves back up so you get this flush production when you do that and especially if they're if they're pumping in like this uh ucs company is pumping in butane propane you can get a 200 barrels or 400 barrels or a thousand barrels of that stuff for a certain price right now and you pump that stuff in and let it sit, let it soak, let it react chemically in that reservoir, and you pay those shut-in payments to the lease to, to hold it all, and then all of a sudden you're at $100 oil and you turn that well back on, you can get some serious flush production. You just sit there and watch the, te- the tubing pressures and the, ba- and the backside pressures just climbing. You're like, right on. You know, the reservoir's talking to us. And you just, so you're, I think there's, there's probably some, some good science experiments, engineering experiments going on there. So talk to me about your, your take on like, on an oil and gas lease, just the fundamentals of an oil and gas lease. Uh, can you just break down, you know, what, what it is and what you're, what you're doing? Yeah, well, um, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a contract, you know, they put the names of the oil company on there, put the name of the mineral owner on there, identify the, the land. Um, that gets surveyed? There's some kind of survey out there that says you... The oil companies will survey it uh, before they drill it, but, um, you know, if it's a section of land you can and you, uh, you know it's 640 acres, if you put 640 acres and identify the abstract and, you know, you put a good property description in there, that's good enough for a lease. Okay. And, uh, you know, you can fine-tune it uh, eventually if you survey it and figure out it's 650 acres instead of 640 acres actually things like that um and then you know <clears throat> the term of the lease and the royalty of the lease and then there'll be all kinds of things in there um 
you know, uh, sometimes there'll be details in there about the surface, you know, um, the water usage. Uh, if you want to use the water there, you know, make sure if you, the oil company wants to use the water, you have to make sure that, well, I would, I would make sure that that's in the lease. Um, and sometimes a, uh, the landowner will say, you know, we don't want you using our wells. So they'll put that in the lease. Maybe they don't want a new well to be, uh, within 300 feet of a house or mm -hmm. a structure or 500 feet. So, you know, that'll be in there. Then you got other little things like, you know, no hunting on my land yeah. while you're out here. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe someone says, you know, I don't want you to bring guns out here period. Or, you know, you got details like that. Um, now is that all kind of standard stuff that's been worked on for many years? Okay. Yeah. Well, each oil company has their own. I mean, there is no standard lease. Uh, some people claim that there is kind of arguable whether there is a standard lease or not. Um, but then, you know, you have different clauses in the lease, like the pew clauses are the most important or one of the most important. It's just, you know, if you, uh, basically everything gets released that's not producing whether it's uh horizontally um to the unit or it's uh below the depth of the unit a good lease from a landowner's from a mineral owner's point of view will have those kind of clauses okay clauses. so it doesn't say like surface to core of the earth like <laughs> yeah right <laughs> there's right. a little more specific here you're going for the eagleford i'm going to lease you the mineral rights to the Eagleford plus a hundred feet above plus a hundred feet below or something like exactly. that. That's what, a, that's what a savvy lease would, that's more of a savvy breakdown of a lease. Yes. And that's, you know, arguably, um, more fair to the mineral owner to have, have those pew clauses in their lease. It is more fair to the mineral owner because, you know, that gives, affords them more opportunities if they, um, you know, if you want to come in there and, uh, maybe you want to drill, you know, 3,000 feet, well, you know, you haven't shut out uh, the opportunity for a fracking company, a big oil company to come in there and drill 10,000 feet if they have that pew clause in their lease. So uh, technically you could run your operation and so could a, a bigger operation run underneath it. So you talked about a term and you talk about royalty interest is one of the first steps too. The term is, is what exactly? Just the length of like, so, if you want to lease someone and it's a three-year lease, uh, you have three years to um, get the ball rolling with the producing, with drilling, and getting your permits and all that. Um, there's certain things in that lease that say, like, you know, for example, that'll hold the lease for you, the oil company. Like if you, you know, are out there showing efforts to uh, make surveying and um, showing efforts that you're, you know, you've drilled in the ground and you've disturbed the soil and you're making efforts to drill that lease. So maybe it's not necessarily producing yet, but at least you're making the efforts to I do see. it. And that's all handled. That's all in the details. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then the royalty, um, let's talk well, royalty. So <laughs> in the heyday of, uh, fracking, the royalty went up to 25% and there's rare cases. I, maybe where it went above 25%, but that's just not very smart, I think, from an oil company to give someone a lease above 25%. 25% should be the absolute maximum, I think. 
but even in today's environment, uh, now that you know all this time has gone by and the whole fracking industry as a whole hasn't produced positive cash flow from these horizontal wells, well, it should be fair that they should be able to do that and they should get more of that income stream, I believe. So, yeah. you know, it should start going closer down to an eighth, but there's competition among oil companies. This so, is what this is what I don't like about the whole land situation. <laughs> you guys go you guys comfortably go between percentages and freaking fractions all the time. <laughs> especially when you're negotiating. Uh-huh. If you guys are in that freaking room, gosh damn it. I'm I'm over there <laughs> with a calculator and <laughs> taking notes and you guys yeah. are going, Oh well, let's do it for a quarter, let's do it for an eighth, one sixteenth, how about uh, that's twenty percent and I'm going, uh-huh. What is going on, uh-huh. man? You got the language of land and then you're talking about a section, you know, the the east half of the fourth half of the sixth half you know, uh-huh. the, of you the have east to have one. a map. Yeah. Right. Well when we talk that language it registers with us, but yeah, we uh yeah, if it, <laughs> if you don't know what's uh if you're not familiar with it, it's Easier just to have a map right in front of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah Maybe yeah. a uh, a little uh, legend there. One quarter equals point two five or something like that too. That that might help. Ah oh, man, when it gets into the sixteenths and the one eighths, you know, I'm going. Gosh, damn you guys! So you just did it. You went from you know you're saying this lease is twenty five percent, but now that we kind of better understand the economics of of long term horizontal wells and how this might need to shift and you lay that out in front of a, 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 a mineral owner and you say, Hey, we need to renegotiate this, this mineral lease. You're getting 25%, but that just doesn't work for us. Uh, tell me, so say that again. You, you want to, yeah, I mean, you tell them that it's, uh, it's economical for you, the oil company to drill this well. If you can, per, if you can pay an eighth royalty, which is, you know, the bottom, basically that's your floor in an oil lease. An eighth. Uh, yeah, so it kind of goes between an eighth and twice as much, a quarter. Hey, here I go. I'm yeah, doing it right now, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so an eighth and a quarter is kind of your ceiling and your floor of royalty. Okay, yeah, that's so an eighth is, is what? what's the percentage of an eighth? 0.125. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so 12 between... 12.5%. Yes. So 12.5% to the mineral owner is a big difference it's a big difference in 25%. Yeah, yeah, it's twice as much for the oil for the uh, mineral owner. That's right. So wow. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so now you got royalties, you're kind of breaking that down. You got a term. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're breaking that down. And then and then the rest, you talked about a pew clause. What's well, a We pew can talk clause? about bonus payments. That's that's important, you know, to sign this lease, we'll pay you this many dollars per acre. Oh, wow. And that has uh you know i've seen it fifty dollars an acre a hundred dollars an acre for some of these smaller verticals to uh gosh the kind of the standard i would say from where i was leasing in the eagleford was like two thousand dollars an acre wow okay that's kind of like where it was at and then from there you might go up you might go down but i know like i've heard of some federal leases in New Mexico, going for a hundred thousand dollars an acre because oh, the production man. is just so unbelievable out there. Of course, they're not going to pay that unless you know they are very confident that even though they're paying that much money, they're gonna um, you know it's gonna be a gusher out there. Wow! Yeah, Can so, you get closer to the mic? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. sure. Let me scoot in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Man, okay, so that's pretty interesting. You get bonuses. So the, the, the mineral owner is getting bonuses. They're getting this term. They're getting this operator that's coming in spending all the dollars. They obviously got to do work, you know, build roads and, and fences maybe. And, you know, all those those things are, are built into it. And then uh, what else is, is kind of the fundamentals of a lease? What else? What are we missing? Anything? Um, there's many different provisions there. Um, I think, you know, I pretty much covered the major ones. I know I'm uh, probably forgetting some. What's the most ridiculous thing you've seen in a lease? Hmm. <laughs> you got to feed my cows every Tuesday. <laughs> you know, uh, I haven't really seen anything like that. Um, I've seen something like that in a warranty deed, but I haven't seen anything really ridiculous in a oil and gas lease like that. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure it exists, but I just haven't really seen it. Now, what are you doing today? Like what, what is your job? I know you got your business card. Uh, so you, you tell us, tell us what you're doing right now. Yep. Uh, right now I'm going out to my man cave in my backyard and I'm getting on my computer and getting on the internet and, um, looking into who owns the minerals and the leasehold on a horizontal well. I'm working through a land company, um, and this other oil company is interested in buying that. Okay. They're interested in buying the leasehold, and they want to know who the uh, mineral owners are. Okay, so you're yep. working for the person that wants to buy that horizontal well. Yes, they want well, to buy the leasehold. Yes, they want that's to buy- right. Okay, so the, the, hor- the lease, the the well, yes. Okay, that's so right. the, okay, so that's kind of yeah, it's kind of what I'm I'm trying to do. You got a, it's already producing, it's already drilled. Yeah. Um, and and you're saying so this company's going, man, I, I want to offer you a good deal on the on the on the well. The op- current operating company's going, okay, I think I'm going to take that deal. That sounds about right. And then you come in before the deal's done, and you're verifying. Verifying, that's right. Mm-hmm. Who owns it? That's what I do. Who owns nice. the minerals? Who owns the leasehold? Nice. Yep. Okay. And uh, were there any overrides taken out? You know, because um, uh. that'll reduce the profitability for the oil company if they buy it. If there's, you know, 10% override that was taken out, Whoa. then, well, that's 10% of the entire thing. And that's cost-free usually. Whoa. Yeah, those. So uh, royalty interest payment is to the person who owns the mineral rights. Yes. And they get... 15% of the oil sales, right? They don't have to pay any LOE. They don't, they don't pay the taxes on it. Now, see, that depends on the details of the lease. Okay. Um, there are some cost-free royalty where, um, let's say the mineral owner, it was, let's say it's a competitive area, and they negotiated to get a 25% cost-free royalty. Now, arguably, uh, some, some, it's kind of, there's been some litigation about this, um, you know, you have to be real careful how you word that cost-free royalty because some oil companies believe that you can still take something out of that and uh, others don't. Uh, in the mineral, some mineral owners believe that you, you cannot take anything out of that, but it depends on how exactly you worded that. Okay, so you're saying there's there, the mineral owners sometimes can be can charged get, can, well, hauling fees or, or uh, t- production By tax. default, they are charged. Okay. Um, but well, I say by default, it's it's the, the the default lease. It says in there, you know, 
minus these certain charges right. or whatever it minus, may be. Minus fees. Transportation, and, compression, whatever it yeah, may be. Yeah. Yep. And, um, but, you know, an attorney may take over that lease and make it, or a landman may take over that lease, uh, helping the mineral owner and make it uh, cost-free royalty. Cost-free royalty. Yeah, it just depends how it's negotiated. Okay. Let's just go with the, uh, the, the, the standard deal where it's uh it's 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 uh 15 or 20 percent mineral 20 percent goes to the mineral owner less taxes and fees mm-hmm. okay and now so now the operator's getting 80 percent on that lease oh but wait there's some there's some fine detail down here some small print and uh andrew douglas is getting a 10 percent override that's right yep you have to you have to run the leasehold as well, not just the minimum. Where does that get documented? Like It's so, all in the clerk's office. Is that right? Yes. So you got an overriding royalty interest owner that doesn't own the mineral rights, but that the operator who put that lease together with the owner of the mineral rights went off and did a side deal with some individual. That's right. And mm-hmm. said, I'm going to give you 10% of this lease too. So now the operator's getting 70% minus le- le- mm-hmm. less taxes and fees. Yeah. Now, in 10% is, I mean, I've seen it higher, I've seen it lower, but usually there's, I say usually, I don't know what the a- actual average is, but, you know, you may uh, frequently, I'll see something like just a 2 or 3% override or maybe no, no override in there at all. And the, so, the mineral owner gets no say in the overrides. No. In the overrides. That's all, usually what happens or what used to happen uh, more often is, um, the person who, uh, the land company who uh, bought the leases, who got everybody leased, they took, they took the leases out, and so now they have, have all the leasehold. Of, maybe it's for a particular oil company. And that particular oil company decides, you know what, um, we don't, we're not going to drill this area, so let's sell our leasehold. So that oil company will take an override. They'll go ahead and sell it. They'll make some money there, but they'll also take a 1% override or a 2% override oh or gosh. half of a 1% override. Oh my so gosh. if they do drill it, they get a free ride, you know, half, half of 1% or 1%. Oh, yep. Eating away at the whole freaking system there, the whole economic system. Yep. It's my understanding that overrides are not as frequent as they, they once were. It's usually now just... Um, more of a cash deal where they, you know, they sell the yeah. the lease and they for a higher price than what they paid right. for it, and they take their money that way. And right. you know, you get to you get full control over it. I don't have anything to do with the production, but it definitely still occurs. I, I see it all the time. Wow. But I don't I don't, I don't think it's as frequent as it used to be. Yeah. Or maybe just like a company that was uh, not an oil company and they're just out there buying leases, and they never had any intention of drilling it themselves. They're just some kind of you know company that goes out there and buys leases. Maybe maybe that applies more to them, where they don't get to take an override. I don't know that oh, to yeah. be a fact though. That's interesting. That's interesting. And then there's uh, there's there's uh, working interest partners that that the lease can take on, right? And they they now have some individual or maybe another company even that says. Uh, I'm gonna pay. I'm gonna help pay the lease operating expenses for some of the profit that the operator is getting in this deal. And the operator can go do a deal with someone as a working interest partner, right? Yeah, the working interest. Um, you know, they're gonna be responsible for the expenses. Whoever's the working interest owner. So yeah, right. they're gonna be responsible for. And then there's non-ops. 
that, right? Then yeah. there's non-op partners, non-operating. Is that a well, working interest? Well, the, the non-operating partners can still be working interest owners. Okay. Yep. They're, um, Makes sense. But there's some, and uh, the term is uh, fleeting my memory right now, but there's, uh, there's uh, some people who uh, own the leasehold and uh, they're not working interest owners and they will get less of the uh, the the stream of whatever they're um, what are they called that's what i'm saying I, I it's not a royal it's right not now. a royalty interest it's not yeah. an override it's not a working interest it's something else yeah it's just a it's there's a term for the the leasehold owner who doesn't want to pay the expenses Interesting. Yeah. And they just, their profitability gets reduced though, because they're, um, it's called non-consent. That's what it is. Non-consent. Yeah, they go non-consent. So they don't get as much because they're not paying anything into the expenses. Non-consent. Interest yes, owner. Oh, non-consent interest owner. Is that what that is? Or well, just not con- I, I just know it as they go, they're going non-consent. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. so they're a leasehold owner and they went non-consent. So wow. yeah, I'm sure some people call it different things, but that's how I know it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, man. Yeah. That's, that's cool. You, you, you got us lined out on, on the basics of, of the lease and, uh, and then you, you get to renegotiate all that stuff, huh? Like at any time you can go in and, and sit down with the mineral owner and say, man, look at the books guys. Like I'm, I'm, I'm hurting over here. I'm going to, I'm either going to lose this lease. You're going to lose these wells. Like, can we renegotiate? Can we? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you can always renegotiate, uh, and just, you know, maybe you want to pitch to them that, you know, the only way you're going to be able to do this is if you, uh, renegotiate the royalty from whatever it was a quarter 20 yeah. percent to an eighth 12 and a half percent something like that in order to make it economical for you otherwise there's not going to be any new production you're not going to you're not going to rework it wow. that's definitely an argument you can wow same with the overriding guys right you can go find them and go hey you've been carrying this override for 12 years on this thing uh it's killing the economics i'm, I'm the new operator i'm coming in and and I need to I need to buy those the, buy the override from you or do that yeah I don't I don't think it's too common to contact a owner of a, um, of a override and renegotiate that but I'm sure I'm, I know it's happened before but I just I don't some think of it's these common. things gotta happen yeah. you know it's gotta happen these things are just left for dead you know there's so many wells that are just not it's not worth it. Because too many people are getting too much percentages of other stuff, so the operators just—it's just not worth it. it killed, it's either you're, you're going to kill this thing, no one's going to make money, or everybody can renegotiate and we can we can work together and make something happen. All right, we're we're going to go into the completion part of this show, which we've learned a lot, or certainly I have, and uh, and now I just want to. One thing I was remembering was kind of where do you see deals transacting? And we kind of talked offline that, you know, that's, that's not exactly where you're at as a landman consultant. You're not in those discussions of, of what deals are going for, but, um, you know, it's, is it $40,000 per flowing barrel? You know, it's $80 oil, you know, it just, it's real situational, you know, what's the cash flow that the lease is, is doing, but maybe one thing that you, you could shine some light on is, you know, if, if you're, you're evaluating a company or you're thinking about a company and they got five, six different leases, 
you know, this one little offset lease, it's not really making the company much money. But what is it from an internal perspective or from a land perspective, you know, is there, is there, am I missing something or is there just no more value than holding that position and getting a little bit of cash flow from it and you, you can sell it and get it off the books or you keep it for any other reasons, any other benefits for the company to have a, an extra lease that's just kind of trickling along? Mm, I mean, you know, the oil company, I think you covered all the bases there. I mean, just depends on how much it's going to cost for them to rework that well and get it going. Um, and versus whether they should sell it off or um, maybe they want to just hold, hold that area uh, because uh, sometime in the future they want to, they may decide that they want to get it up and going. So that's, according to what I know, that's their three, three decisions they have, their three options. Okay. Get it started now, get it started later, or just sell it off. Yeah. And it all depends on the economics there. Yeah. Yep. Right on. Interesting. Um, well, so, so what's it? What's completion for you? What's, what's the next five years, 10 years look like for you? Um, I think maybe the next five, 10 years from now, I'd like to be on a deal team um, that uh, is trading prospects or um, working for an oil company, oil companies where I have those opportunities to take overrides. Oh, nice. Because that's kind of like your 401k for a petroleum landman. Okay. You know, we don't have 401k. Right. But if we can work something out with an oil company and get some overrides, yeah. especially if it's a, um, you know, a, a well that's going to produce for many years to come, which yep. typically been vertical wells. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's, that's the upside of a vertical well. I mean, um, I have a, um, a royalty in a vertical well that's been producing since 1935 <laughs> or something like that. Of course, I mean, I just owned it the last... You know, that pre- predates me, but um, sure. what happened to me is, um, how did I get that one? I, I, I went to a tax sale, and I bought some land, and um, it was in the middle of, uh, I didn't even know it had an oil well at the time. <laughs> By the way, these opportunities are like practically gone now that everything's gone online. But I bought this, um, I went out to this, uh, in Ascos County, went to a tax sale, uh, <laughs> bought this land, it's 10 acres, in the middle of uh, someone's ranch and uh, flipped it to so flip the surface to them, kept the minerals. And, you know, I got a, um, I get a check every month. It's nothing big pays my water bill. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. but if I could do that 50 more times, that's right. Know, then that could be something, but you know, I could work that's something cool. out where it would be economical for me. So how does that go? So you, you, you're, you're, you help, uh, do all the land work. You help, you know, verify exactly what you're getting, and then you you also are, are helping to negotiate the deal, or you know, right? So and yes. then that that gets transacted, and you're saying, okay, for me, you, you're putting all the skin in the game, or you're also getting paid at the same time. Yeah, I'm not putting the skin in the game. I'm just a consultant. You know, I I'm see. just uh, so the land company is paying me. And uh, I'm helping them 
get this person leased and making sure that the title work is right. And what they do with it after that, you know, they send me my check 30 days later, hopefully. Yeah. That's one of the pitfalls of being a landman is uh, all of us have been, uh, most of us have been around. There's been that one uh, oil company. In my case, it was a oil company that went bankrupt, and so I never got Jeez. that check. <laughs> so yeah, that so transaction goes through, and, and you're thinking, what, uh, uh, you, you just want a percent or two of, of whatever happens and, and goes forward on that lease? Yeah, well, where I'm at, um, I'm, I'm not getting overrides right now, but that's what I want. That's what I, in the future, that's what I want to do with, you know, if I'm working with an oil company, if, if I can work something out, I'd like to, you know, get maybe i won't make as much in my day rate right but i'll um, get an override which i think it should be done because it really encourages it puts my interests aligned with everybody else right you know right. Uh, I, I think they should go back to that it would definitely make uh for better quality work i mean i'm not speaking for myself there i mean my work's going to be quality whether i have an override or not but i think some people you know, if they just feel, oh, you know, I'm just getting day rate and uh, my pay's been the same for the last 15 years. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the your your rate's going to go up if you work directly for the oil company compared to if you working with a land company. You're going to make more money that way. I you see. should. But if you get an override, maybe, you're, maybe not, you know, but yeah. that compensates for that. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Interesting. So now you're developing this plan in, in your mind and, and you're going to start executing your, your actions towards doing this, towards becoming a landman that's getting more into the trading part and more into the you know longevity of production and, and getting tied into that. So that's going to be your next five to 10 years. You're going to go do that because that's who you are. That's we set out. You obviously set out a plan. You go and and you actually start doing that. So I'm excited for that. Uh, where do you see the industry going? Where do you see oil and gas going in the next five, five to ten years while you're doing this? Well, it all depends on Saudi Arabia and Russia, I think, and, and some other factors, too. Maybe Venezuela will come back online. Uh, but it's all going to be, uh, you know, whether or not it's economical for oil companies to continue drilling. And if there's war in Russia that's ongoing, if Saudi cuts supply, if Venezuela... Uh, increases their their production those are all factors that are going to play into whether or not it's how economical it's going to be for the oil industry to continue yeah but i agree with uh what charlie munger has to say which that's warren buffett's sidekick that the oil industry is going to be around for a long time coming so uh you know there may be trendy to uh for all these renewables to come online and um i definitely see some value to doing that for sure but i think at the same time it's it's going to take i'd say a hundred years to exterminate the the oil industry we're going to be we're going to be here um especially if you know something like a greater a bigger war happens then you know it's going to be inevitable yeah and, you know, we're not even talking about military. I mean, you know, all the different products for right. oil. I mean, are they going to get rid of plastic right away? Right. You know, so. No, oh, I know. We're, I, I think, think the oil industry is definitely in my lifetime. It'll still be here. Yeah. And I intend to. I enjoy being in the oil industry. Um, I think it's uh, fun at times. And, um, you know, there's a. Uh, there's 
pot of gold out there in the oil industry. You hit the right well. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite there where I, I'm having those kind of opportunities, but you know, if I keep at it, maybe yeah. there will be. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's interesting, man. I, it's, there's a, there's a, a we a strange, I don't yeah, a strange disconnect, uh, with, with reality. I feel like when we're talking about renewables and, and electric vehicles and oil and gas and, and this idea of what's going, you know, humans are somehow destroying this planet, which is where we come from, you know, like if, if you, if geologically, if you have the ability to step back and just kind of realize that we are, that we are the earth, we are one in this nature, we are one in this, this thing. But we have this mentality that for some reason, we feel like we can control it, like the AC dial in the inside of our car, right? That's that there's a huge disconnect there. We, we weren't brought here from some other planet, you know, like, no, the geologic rock record has us kind of coming right out of this thing. <laughs> like we're a part of the nature is very, very real. And our understanding of that is very uh, primitive. You know, we are we do not understand the, the the real detailed interconnections to nature and our place in this. Uh, so we, we just need to relax, you know, that for, for me, that that's the perspective of just kind of hold on. There's a, there's a reason why hydrocarbons are so valuable to the way we operate. Like it's part of nature, you know, if anything, building electric batteries and building all these things that are kind of against nature, you know, that's, that gives me a little bit more of a red flag than what we are, what we have, you know, like we need to understand the fundamentals in order to get to true innovation and tr- that next true step in in sustainability for for humans on this planet or whatever like these idea these big ideas but we don't understand the fundamentals you know there, there's a disconnect well i just wonder how many uh stockpiles of bat of these batteries i mean those are big batteries that are in the cars right yeah. now they are yeah you know so how much waste is we going to produce from electric right. cars um solar panel waste right. Right. uh wind turbine waste yeah. they're just burying those in the ground for the most part i mean yeah. there's some technologies out there but yeah. there's a lot of waste from those industries too yeah heck yeah yeah i hear you i hear not you. to mention the energy that produced all of that is probably oil related oh not probably it 100 yeah. is the only way a it's wind turbine <laughs> yeah the only way a wind turbine is economically made is because you have the reliable energy of hydrocarbons making it if you were make if you had a wind turbine making that wind turbine yeah it'd be really really challenging economically you know disastrous economically so there's all there's there's some real interesting things to go down that rabbit hole and i i agree with what uh, mr munger is 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 making his his logical observation of like oil and gas not going anywhere um and you, and that that's that's it's exciting for us because we're learning business we're learning these valuable things that we can pass on to our children about how this all works and how how global politics are tied into this and you know human history is going into a place it's never been you know the integration and and humanity and how things really work you know that's exciting for us and and i think you know to become the new teachers of the next generation and really understand how this goes um, give me your gut feeling. You said 
you know, this the kind of war in Russia. You talked about Saudi Arabia either opening the floodgates or cutting back. And then you talked about Venezuela. Give me your gut feeling on each of those for the next five to 10 years. Which way are they going? Well, if Biden gets reelected, obviously there's going to be more of a reality that Venezuela will come back online um, the way it once was. Um, and that would obviously put downward pressure on the price of oil and gas. Okay. Um, uh, as for Russia, um, that's very unpredictable what, what is ultimately going to happen. But if Putin is still in charge, I do not see that ending anytime soon. Um, so next five years, uh, probably going to continue. Wow. Uh, of course, you know, I could be totally wrong about that. I mean, you know, who knows what might be worked out. What's your um, gut telling you? Is your gut telling you it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep if, grinding If out? Biden is still there, I think it's going to continue. Um, if someone else comes in um, that has more of a, um, uh, it's more aggressive, then it could, it could stop. Not necessarily, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, my gut is, is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're watching. Yep. Yeah. These are the things you're watching. And yep. Saudi Arabia, you think they're going to crank it up, the production knob? They're cranking it down? Uh, I think um, all else equal, I think they're just going to continue with um, basically what they've been doing. I don't think we're going to see anything dramatic from them. But again, okay. you know, who am I? <laughs> you know, who am I? I, I well, you pay attention. Yeah, to I'm stuff. not a diplomat, so I don't, you know, I don't have any high level negotiations with them or anything. So <laughs> I'm an armchair political analyst right now, <laughs> along with everybody Good. else, I guess. Yeah. Well, man, I, I, I enjoy your feedback. I enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you doing Me this too. podcast. Yeah, I enjoyed this. This, this right is great. On.